Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A text message pitching an aggressive strategy to undermine American democracy. The lead starts right now. Breaking news. We now know whose phone sent that message to Mark Meadows suggesting state electors or state legislatures rather ignore the voters of three states while votes were still being counted. It turns out the phone belongs to a former member of Donald Trump's cabinet and we'll tell you who in a sec. A viral blizzard, the new warning about COVID as Radio City cancels its Christmas Spectacular and the Times Square New Year's Eve crowds. Well, they might be next. And former police officer Kim Potter recalls the moment she shot and killed Dante Ray. I remember yelling, taser, 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 and nothing happened. And then he told me I shot him. Will her tears impact the jury? Hello and welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin with breaking news this hour. In fact, we are breaking it for you right now. We are learning more about that text message to former President Trump's then Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, one that outlined a way to deliver the election to Trump before the votes had even finished being counted. Three sources tell me and my colleague Jamie Gengel The members of the bipartisan House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection believe that former Energy Secretary and Texas Governor Republican Rick Perry texted Mark Meadows on November 4th. That's the day after the election. Now, multiple sources who have Perry's phone number and separately databases of phone numbers confirm that the number from which that text was sent, which CNN obtained from a source, that number belongs to Rick Perry. That unsettling text message sent while votes were still being counted in several states. It said, quote, here's an aggressive strategy. Why can't the states of Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania and other Republican controlled state houses declare this is BS where conflicts and election not called that night and just send their own electors to vote and have it go to SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States. Now, a spokesman for Rick Perry tells us that the former governor denies having sent that text. When asked how he explained the fact that the text came from Rick Perry's phone number, which we confirmed through multiple ways, the spokesman had no explanation. The text message was among more than 6,000 documents that Mark Meadows turned over to the committee. It was made public on Tuesday when Democratic Congressman and January 6th committee member Jamie Raskin of Maryland read the text on the House floor during debate on whether to hold Mark Meadows in criminal contempt of Congress for refusing to testify. Raskin cited the text as evidence demonstrating why the committee needed to interview Meadows about the events leading up to and on January 6. How did this text influence the planning of Mark Meadows and Donald Trump to try to destroy the lawful electoral college majority that had been established by the people of the United States and the states for Joe Biden? 
We should note, Raskin mistakenly said on the House floor that it was a House lawmaker who sent the text. They do not believe that it was. They believe it was Rick Perry, the committee. After CNN reached out for comment, a source close to Raskin told us that the congressman confirmed that he had actually made a mistake, and he has now written a letter to correct the congressional record. Let's talk more about this with CNN special correspondent Jamie Gangel, my partner uh, in this story. As always, a pleasure working with you. So what do you think is the significance of this text, which was sent the day after Election Day, before many states had even called who won? My understanding is this is, look, there are a lot of important texts the committee has. This is a very important one because it is November 4th. And aggressive, to use the word in the text, to say the least. Imagine, the election has not been called. The votes have not been counted. And this text message comes to Mark Meadows, basically laying the groundwork to overturn the election. Uh, It is hard to imagine how this comes from Rick Perry is the longest serving governor of Texas three times. He served for two years as energy secretary in Trump's cabinet. How this impacted what happened between November 4th and January 6th is going to be key to the committee's work. And it's it's interesting also because we should note the three states that he was calling for he, it, it appeared uh, that he picked them, among other reasons, uh, that they had Republican legislatures. Absolutely. And one of them, Trump went on to win, North Carolina. He, he cites Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania. North Carolina, Trump won. But no one was waiting right. for the voters they didn't want to the vote. To they were ready to go in, send your own electors, yeah. know, ignore the voters. And we only have had eyes into a handful of these texts when... Markman has turned over 6,000 documents. So I think this is a very key point, Jake. Um, We know, you and I have both heard that in other instances where we're seeing text messages, it's not just one text message. We don't know yet, but were there multiple text messages from this phone? How did Mark Meadows respond uh, to that? And remember again, Mark Meadows voluntarily handed this over without any claim of privilege to the committee. It's one of the first texts the committee has released. They clearly see it as important. And despite the fact that Perry says he didn't author it, we do know it came from his phone. And I'm told that eventually all of these texts will be identified. Well, it's easy to deny something through a spokesperson. It's less easy to do so when you're under oath. We should note about uh, Governor Perry, um, this is somebody who in 2015, when he ran for president, he's run for president twice, didn't win either time. In 2015, running against Trump, he referred to Trumpism as a cancer of conservatism and said that that cancer would ultimately corrupt conservative principles. And, you know, I mean, the evidence is right there. It's, I spoke to some longtime uh, Republicans, people who know Rick Perry very well about this. They could not understand why he would do this. But it does speak to something we've seen over and over again with Trump loyalists. And that is, you know, this text is going around the American people. 
End of story. Yeah. Jamie Gagnell, thank you so much. Sure. A pleasure working with you on this. I'm sure we'll have more stories in the future on the subject. Let's discuss with our panel and SE Cup. Let me start with you um, because before the show, uh, you heard me rehearsing. We have three individuals uh, on background and a fourth off the record uh, confirming Rick Perry's uh, phone number for us, the number that we got from uh, a source familiar with where this text came from. And then why don't you tell people about the conversation you and I just had? Well, I I said, you know, if you want to share the number, I have it as well. I have the number because he emailed me his number uh, to talk about something unrelated, um, actually about mental health. We had a really interesting, good, nice conversation about mental health um, just a few months ago. And I corroborated that was the number that he personally gave me. And so I, you know, look, I like Rick Perry personally, but I think the question of whether it's his number is probably, um, the wrong one, whether someone maybe got a hold of his phone, I guess is a possibility, but that is Rick Perry's phone number, the one he gives out. So, and what's odd about that also is, is, uh, obviously, um, it, it, they won't offer an explanation. They just deny it. I didn't write that. Well, it came from your phone. It came from your phone. We've now, you know, confirmed the phone number on two different databases and from five people who know you. Daniela Gibbs-Leger, we just talked about this uh, with uh, Jamie, but this is the same Rick Perry who said this six years ago. Let no one be mistaken. Donald Trump's candidacy is a cancer on conservatism, and it must be clearly diagnosed, excised, and discarded. It cannot be pacified or ignored, for it will destroy a set of principles. It will destroy a set of principles. That's interesting. Yeah, who knew Rick Perry was going to end up being quite a soothsayer? Um, it just shows, again, how deep the the rot of Trumpism has gone within the party. Like, look, I don't agree with Rick Perry on probably pretty much anything. But given like what he said during the 2015 election, I never would have guessed that he would have become a person who would text uh, Mark Meadows the day after the election, before votes are even counted, trying to subvert the will of the American people. It's really, really disturbing. And it just goes to, again, how important it is to to get Mark Meadows under oath and talk about what happened after he received those text messages. And SE, we should know, you know, this is a former governor and cabinet secretary, generally well regarded. uh, And this week, we also learned sitting lawmakers, Justice Department officials, former Defense Department officials, so many of them in on this attempt to undo the will of the American people. We can't just dismiss this as fringe, just some harebrained scheme uh, among a couple bad apples. How has your own thinking shifted this week from what we've learned? Well, it's, it, was an, it was a massive attempt at scamming, rigging, meddling an election. All the things that Donald Trump has accused other people of doing Um, All these people were interested in doing. Look, democracy was at work while they were suggesting this. Democracy was doing its job. The wheels of democracy were turning because the democracy is the counting part, the counting part of the votes, right? You count the votes. That's how you know how, uh, who won and who voted for whom. Before the votes were counted, while democracy was working, all of these people were suggesting uh, a scam, a, a way to scam and thwart democracy. That is perpetrating a massive fraud 
on the American people. And I just can't imagine anyone defending this. And I, I'm not surprised Rick Perry, if he authored that, we don't know if he authored that. I'm not surprised he's denying it. I would like to hear him denounce it, though. Daniela, um, Roger Stone was deposed today by the January 6th committee. He was planning to invoke the Fifth Amendment for much of his deposition. Uh, we will find out more about whether or not he did that. But it does pose the question, why wouldn't other witnesses such as Mark Meadows or Steve Bannon, who both just refused to show up to testify, why not just show up and, and plead the Fifth? Right. I mean, that that may be what they end up doing because they know perhaps that if they they don't want to perjure themselves under oath. Right. That's that's what they're trying to do. They want to avoid either having to lie or having to admit that they had a hand in trying to overthrow democracy and had a hand in in allowing what happened on January 6th to happen. So we'll see what happened with Roger Stone. We'll see what happens with Mark Meadows. But, you know, if these people really love this country, they were true patriots, if they believed in all the conservative values that they've been espousing for years, they would just go and and tell the truth about what happened. S.E., Daniela, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. It's starting to look a lot like a Christmas of cancellations everywhere you go. And we have not not even hit this so-called viral blizzard. Plus, why a TikTok trend forced hundreds of schools to cancel classes today. Stay with us. In our health lead, the CDC says COVID hospitalizations could reach record levels in the coming weeks as the holiday season and travel are getting into full swing. Now long lines for COVID testing are forming in New York and Boston, Miami, and as CNN's Kyung La reports, one expert says Omicron, with its high transmissibility, could strike millions more soon. America's COVID time warp. Long testing and vaccination lines from Miami to Massachusetts. In New York City, the positivity rate has doubled in just four days. A city health advisor tweeted, we've never seen this before in NYC. Radio City Music Hall canceled Friday's shows of its Christmas spectacular, citing breakthrough cases. In pharmacies, store shelves for rapid tests sit empty, all echoes of the past. People here waiting more than an hour to be tested as Omicron reveals its rapid spread. This is after coming yesterday twice and then not being able to get tested here. This is a whole new animal. And we got to be honest about the fact that it's moving very fast and we have to move faster. The past is prologue as New York's mayor redoubles restrictions and considers scaling back the Times Square New Year's Eve celebration. A visible return of sports restrictions. Hockey in Montreal played to empty stands and the NFL and NBA increasing COVID protocols. This is all in response to deaths, increasing in nearly half of U.S. states, up sharply in seven. That's an increase of 8 percent from just last week. I think we're really just about to experience a viral blizzard. If you look at what's happened in South Africa, you look what's happening in Europe, I think in the next three to eight weeks, we're going to see millions of Americans who are going to be infected with this virus. We are looking at a winter of severe illness and death for unvaccinated. As with previous surges, the unvaccinated are filling hospitals. As weary doctors warn, they are exhausted and losing staff. The reality is you can't you can't just create humans in order to provide that care. And, you know, staffing is a challenge everywhere. 
Now, the NFL announced that three games this weekend would be postponed on Saturday. The Cleveland Browns versus the Las Vegas Raiders on Sunday. Seattle Seahawks versus the L.A. Rams. And the Washington football team versus your beloved Philadelphia Eagles, Jake. All of them are going to be uh, postponed a few days because of the number of players being put on the COVID-19 reserve list. Jake. All right. I can wait a couple more days for the Eagles. Thanks so much. Kyung La, appreciate it. Joining us now to discuss CNN Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Uh, Sanjay, there's this damning new report from the House Oversight Committee led by Democrats uh, revealing how the Trump White House deliberately undermined the COVID response because they say the administration put Trump's re-election uh, ahead of America's health and safety. Um, that's their take. You, you've spoken to former Trump health officials throughout this pandemic. When you hear this, when you see two years later, cases still spiking, lines still forming just to get tests, what stands out to you? Well, you know, what, what stands out to me reporting on this sort of consistently and talking to these officials that I think in the beginning there was a desire to sort of downplay this to say, hey, maybe this isn't going to be as serious as we think, uh, which I think a lot of people sort of realized that was happening and there was a lot of wishful thinking. I think what is sort of striking from this report and also some of the interviews that I've done is that became increasingly strategic. The idea of saying, hey, people who, ha- who don't have symptoms don't need to be tested, despite the fact that we knew much of, if not most of the spread was coming from asymptomatic people. And then also just really uh, curtailing the amount of time officials could speak about this. Uh, they, they, were, they had to get permissions. Oftentimes they couldn't get those permissions. It was really challenging. I asked Dr. Deborah Burks about this specifically for this documentary. Take a look. Were you being censored? Clearly someone was blocking me from doing it. My understanding is I could not be national because the president might see it. That's sort of an example of what it translated to, I think, for people like Dr. Burks, but even Dr. Fauci, who said they were ready to present a new plan in terms of how to, to uh, progress with the pandemic. And uh, at the, around the same time, tweets were going out saying, liberate Michigan, liberate Virginia, very much at, o- at odds with what the scientists were saying. President Biden uh, has offered a clear warning. If you're unvaccinated, you're looking at a winter of severe illness, maybe even death. What's this winter going to look like for those of us who are vaccinated, even uh, with the boosters? I, I think you're going to be far less likely to get sick. I mean, you should feel feel pretty well protected if you are vaccinated and boosted. But let me show you the, the problem here. So if we look at vaccinated and unvaccinated with regard to hospitalizations, and Jake, as you know, I think the hospitalizations ends up being the truest metric of things. It's so tangible. Are hospitals becoming overwhelmed or not? The vast majority, as you can see, uh, the red line, that's unvaccinated patients uh, with COVID in the hospital compared to the green line. What happens, Jake, if these hospitals do start to get full, the tangible impact on people in society is that the hospitals may go on diversion. They may not have enough beds, uh, harder to take care of trauma patients, harder to do elective operations, things like that. So that impacts everybody. So that's even if you're vaccinated, that could have an impact on you. And also just look at Omicron versus Delta for a second. Everyone says this is more contagious, but I want to show you what that means based on some of this data we're seeing out of the UK. What they found was that to get to 5000 Omicron cases, this is in England, it took 20 days. 
for Delta, which was super contagious, it took closer to 70 days, uh, 75 days to get to that same number. So, you know, you, 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 um, you, you get an idea of just how much more contagious. People are going to get exposed. People are going to test positive as a result of those exposures, even the vaccinated. And that's going to interfere with, you know, there, there'll be quarantines and all sorts of things that result from that. The CDC has updated its guidance to allow kids who were exposed to COVID to test uh, rather than forcing them to stay home for a 10-day quarantine. Do you agree with that? Well, I, you know, I, first I thought this was going to be tough to actually implement. Uh, you know, are you sort of saying, does will testing in this sort of situation uh, be effective enough? But let me show you what they found. Um, they had they looked at, uh, I think it was 31 school districts, 90 different schools, and they basically implemented this policy. And out of those, out of those students, uh, they, I think they had 16 people who tested positive uh, out of there you go, the number's 1,035. They found that they ended up saving, you know, over 8,000 sort of days of school as a result of this sort of plan. So it looks like it's, it's working based on, you know, a couple of these studies that are coming out. So the CDC is showing enthusiasm for this. We'll see if it's something that's adopted more widely. Finally, Sanjay, you're back this weekend with the sixth installment of your series on medical marijuana. It's called Weed. You decided to investigate cannabis and autism. Why that subject and, and what did you find? Well, there was a couple of reasons. One is that we've been reporting on this for some time, and we've been reporting on the use of cannabis for refractory epilepsy, seizure disorders. And researchers kept telling us that, look, in addition to these seizures, children sometimes uh, had these symptoms of autism, which did sometimes also improve as a result of being treated with cannabis. 14 states now permit the use of cannabis for severe autism. But what we wanted to do was really look at where the data is on this, the trials that are happening in the United States, but also even earlier in the United States in Israel, and actually show some of that data, but also introduce you to families who have been dealing with this, Jake. I mean, you know, it's the thing that always strikes me about this, the cannabis as a medicine sort of story is that oftentimes it's the evolution of things. These kids have tried so many different therapies already, including powerful psychotropic drugs that, that don't work for them. And they, they evolve to cannabis and sometimes, not always, but sometimes they get some really remarkable results. All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you. And you can watch Sanjay's new CNN special report, Weed 6, Marijuana and Autism, at 8 p.m. on Sunday. Progressives were promised it would get done if they just said yes to the bipartisan infrastructure deal, but President Biden just admitted it's not going to happen this year. Chair of the Progressive Caucus, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, joins me live next. Stay with us. In the politics lead, President Biden's Christmas wish list is now his New Year's resolution, acknowledging two major parts of his agenda are stalled in the U.S. Senate. Today, Mr. Pre- uh, President Biden told graduates at South Carolina State University, a historically black college, that, that he'll keep up the fight to get voting rights passed. And in a lengthy statement yesterday, Biden said talks on his Build Back Better plan are ongoing, acknowledging he will miss his self-imposed Christmas deadline. Let's bring in CNN's Jeremy Diamond live for us at the White House. And Jeremy... President Biden did not get into the particulars of why these deals are not yet done, but he did name check uh, one of the known holdouts on Build Back Better, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. 
That's right, Jake. The president in that statement yesterday acknowledging that uh, there will not be a deal on Build Back Better in time for uh, the new year, and certainly not uh, by Christmas. The president saying in that statement that there will be days and weeks of conversations ahead. And in that same statement, he did indeed name check Senator Joe Manchin, making clear that conversations with him are still ongoing, but that they have not yet yielded a deal. Uh, that was really uh, one way of saying that they are still very, very far apart. Uh, that is that the divide between Senator Joe Manchin on one side and Senate Democrats and the president on the other side still remains uh, very wide, and it certainly will not be bridged by the end of this year. Uh, that frustration was apparent among Senate Democrats this week who began to talk about the frustration of dealing with uh, Senator Manchin and the fact that in a 50-50 Senate, uh, he is uh, one of the main holdouts here on pushing this forward. Now, the president's concession here that this isn't getting done, ultimately uh, running into the reality of the fact that they are not only far apart, but also that time was indeed running out. In fact, the Senate is about to go into recess uh, just hours from now as they uh, are expected to wrap up uh, some nominations here. And, and then this makes the very difficult task of getting this done in 2022. It is certainly not a cliff. Nothing magical happens once the clock changes to 2022, but it does become more difficult the longer you go into that midterm year. Jake. All right, Jeremy Diamond at the White House for us. Thanks so much. Let's bring in Democratic Congresswoman uh, Pramila Jayapal. She chairs uh, the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Um, Congresswoman, thanks for joining us. So, so President Biden says his conversations with Senator Manchin are going to continue next week and that, quote, it takes time to finalize these agreements, prepare the legislative changes and finish all the parliamentary and procedural steps needed to enable a Senate vote Unquote. But, but isn't this exactly what you and your fellow progressives feared that Biden's infrastructure plan would become law and build back better would ultimately die because of people like Senator Manchin, who has never been enthusiastic about it to begin with? Yeah, Jake, it's great to see you. Um, look, this is what we feared. It's why we tied the two bills together to pass them through the House. And we did take the president's word that he would get uh, 50 votes in the Senate. And uh, the president called me yesterday. I do believe we will get there. I think he is still just as committed. And I don't think it's out of the question that we will at least have an agreement um, by the 25th. Part of the reason we didn't want to vote for the bill when it was just a framework is because when a framework gets translated into legislative text, there's a lot of things that happen. And uh, we did add in the House some things that were not in the framework, and I think we did it because we thought they were important. But I do think that there is still a negotiation going on about which of those things will survive that are beyond what the framework was that was agreed to. And so that is the conversation that the president is continuing to have with Senator Manchin. And I think that, you know, I said when we passed it out of the House and in the days leading up to it, that negotiating is a tricky business. There are a lot of swings, and I think that swings back and forth. And I think that we can't hang our everything on, you know, whatever one person happens to say on a particular day. I still think we're going to get it done. And I've been urging the president, I communicated this to him yesterday from the Progressive Caucus, that we are trusting his word. Uh, he uh, does need to deliver on this because it is 85% of his agenda. It's what we're going to do to actually address um, rising costs across the country by lowering costs of childcare, lowering costs of prescription drugs, insulin, paying 35 bucks for your insulin instead mm -hmm. of hundreds of dollars. And so I believe we're going to get it done. And I think, I think we should continue to push for an agreement um, on the legislative text. The changes will still have to be made. Right. That may take 
week longer, but on that legislative text before December 25th, and that's what I told the president. But a source told CNN that talks between Biden and Manchin over the bill are, quote, very far apart. Have you seen any movement between these two parties in in recent months? What makes you believe that they can actually come up with an agreement by Christmas or a deal by next year? I'm not sure that that's accurate. I was going to say that, actually, in listening to the reports, because, um, you know, the president and Senator Manchin agreed on a framework. It was months of negotiation because we held up the infrastructure bill. We were able to get that agreement moving. We got the framework that, as you remember, Jake, was rolled out the day before the president went to or the day that the president went to Europe for COP26. That is the framework that had the commitment. And I think that, um, you know, it's not I, mm. I don't think it's accurate to say we're very far apart, I think, or that they're very far apart. I think that there are some details that need to be worked out. I think there was a commitment that was made um, by Senator Manchin to the president about that framework. And I think now the question is, um, you know, what about making sure that this legislation is what that framework was, plus what of the things that have been agreed to beyond that can be incorporated? So I don't think we're very far apart. I just think that this is the back and forth of negotiation. I think we're going to get it done. And I think we're we're we are counting on the president to deliver on this. Yeah. So one major sticking point is the child tax credit. The plan now extends the child tax credit for one year. Manchin believes that the benefit will likely ultimately be extended beyond one year. And that cost of that to extend it, make it permanent even, will hike up the bill's current price tag, which Manson wants to keep at one point seven five trillion dollars. I mean, He's not wrong, right? I mean, you do want this to be permanent. He is wrong. Look, he is wrong on this. And even as I was trying to follow your logic, I was I was getting lost, not in your logic, but in the logic that's being made. Because, look, we score bills based on what the bills are. You can't score a bill based on a fictional cost being added without saying, well, there might be a fictional pay for added as well. Everything in this bill is paid for. The CBO score on this is that it is deficit neutral for the first decade. And for the second decade, it actually cuts the deficit by $2 trillion. So let's focus on the bill. We, we had to make choices to let some programs only go for a shorter period of time, which means we're going to have to try to extend them if we can. But at that point, we would also then be able to say, and we have this pay for. So it makes no sense to score a fictional bill and only increase the cost, but not increase the revenue side of it. So, I mean, the real score is this bill is deficit neutral and it reduces deficits for the second decade. Democratic Congresswoman uh, Pramila Jayapal, thank you so much. If I don't see you, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Hope you have a wonderful, wonderful holiday with your family. Thank you, Jake. To you as well. The former police officer who shot and killed Dante Wright takes the stand today. I'm sorry it happened. (laughs) What impact might her tears have on the jury? Stay with us. In our national lead, the fate of the former police officer who fatally shot Dante Wright will soon be in the hands of a jury. The defense just rested their case a short while ago following hours of testimony from the defendant, former officer Kim Potter, who explained publicly for the first time how she mistook her firearm for her taser. CNN's Josh Campbell takes a look at what the 26-year veteran officer told the jury about what happened that tragic day. 
remember yelling, teaser, 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 and nothing happened. And then he told me I shot him. Former officer Kim Potter testifying for the first time, explaining the moment she shot and killed Dante Wright last April. Potter described seeing her fellow officer struggling with Wright during the traffic stop. He had a look of fear on his face. It's nothing I'd seen before. We were struggling. We were trying to keep him from driving away. It just, it just went chaotic. Wright, who officers learned had an outstanding warrant for a weapons violation, was initially pulled over for minor offenses, pointed out by a rookie officer. We discussed a little bit of suspicious activity. Um, he noticed uh, a pine tree or uh, air freshener hanging from the rearview mirror and the, the tabs were expired. Potter revealing they would not have pulled right over at all if she hadn't been training that officer. And why not? An air freshener to me is not, it's just an equipment violation. You did stop the vehicle, right? Yes, part of field training is that my probationer would make numerous contacts with the public throughout the day. That contact would turn fatal. I shot him! Oh my God! <laughs> when she pulled her gun instead of her taser. The state pointing out. You never saw a weapon uh, on Mr. Wright, did you? No. Never saw a gun? No. Oh my God! Adding she did not try to save Wright or check on other officers in the aftermath. You didn't make sure any officers knew what you had just done, right? <laughs> no. You didn't run down the street and try to save Dante Wright's life, did you? No. You were focused on what you had done. Because you had just killed somebody. Right? I'm sorry it happened. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Prosecutors continuing to push. You knew that deadly force was unreasonable and unwarranted in those circumstances. I didn't want to hurt anybody. And Jake, the jury has heard from all of the witnesses that will be testifying in this case. Closing arguments begin on Monday. That will be the last opportunity for the prosecution to make their case that this senior officer should have known better than to pull her service weapon rather than her taser. Of course, Potter has pleaded not guilty. Her defense all along has claimed that this was a tragic mistake. The jury will be sequestered beginning Monday as they start their deliberations. Jake. Josh Campbell, thanks so much. Inside the TikTok school shooting threat that had parents across the country on edge today. Stay with us. In our tech lead, many Americans woke up this morning to an alarm, not from a clock, but from TikTok, a vague and viral social media threat putting students and parents on edge. Schools across the country put on high alert with some canceling classes in response to a warning of violence, a warning originating on social media. CNN's Polo Sandoval joins us now live with more on this. Polo, parents and students now breathing a sigh of relief, but mm -hmm. this threat really terrified a lot of people today. What do we know about how it started? It absolutely did, Jake. And even now, it still remains unclear exactly what or who was behind this threat that authorities were able to confirm that was simply not credible. But nonetheless, as you mentioned, it certainly led to some concerns for parents and even increased police presence. Now, TikTok, for its part, they said that they have been investigating basically since these threats uh, began to circulate online. And so far, uh, they posted an update on Twitter basically saying what they have and have not been able to find. The platform writing uh, in a tweet that they've exhaustively searched for content that 
promotes violence at schools today, but have still found nothing. What we find, they write, are videos discussing this rumor and warning others to stay safe. TikTok going out to write local authorities. The FBI, DHS have confirmed there's no credible threat, so we're working to remove alarmist warnings that violate our misinformation policy. And then you go on to write that, to, to read that, Jake, you see they lay out that, uh, uh, that policy there. Uh, but in the end, though, this is all coming amid growing calls for social media platforms like TikTok to be uh, really more pr proactive and to be more responsible in the way that it basically monitors its content to try to keep things like this from happening again. That, again, did lead to some serious concerns for parents and students across the country, Jake. And Paul, authorities took this threat seriously. Some school districts even shut down today. What, what are officials saying about the reaction to this? Yeah, if they didn't shut down, it, it, there was one Houston area school district, Jake, that, that, that I read about that, that, I, that we were able to confirm that even implemented a backpack ban and some obviously increasing their police presence as well, just to take no chances at all here. But in the end, when you hear from local law enforcement and, and just authorities across the country, there is a concern that even all of this noise on social media could still provoke a, a at least a lone uh, individual to potentially carry out these kinds of attacks, not to mention the damage that's done uh, stretching law enforcement uh, out and also those concerns for staff, parents, and those kids that were just trying to bring their fall semester to a close. Yeah. Paula Sandoval, thanks so much. Coming up, CNN goes inside the lab where they're trying to find out just how transmissible the Omicron variant is. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a vaccine expert will tell CNN the data suggests Omicron escapes vaccines more than any other variant. So we went inside a lab that could hold answers about the risk of Omicron. Plus, it appears President Biden's warning to Vladimir Putin did not work. Russia is still amassing combat troops at the border with Ukraine. And leading this hour, Trump ally Roger Stone today showed up for his deposition with the January 6th committee, but he did not do much talking. He said he exercised his Fifth Amendment right to remain silent in the room. Though outside the room, Stone told reporters he questioned the legitimacy of the committee. This comes as we learn more from the information previously handed over by former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows before he stopped cooperating with the committee as well. Three sources tell me and my colleague Jamie Gangel that members of the House Select Committee investigating January 6th believe that former Energy Secretary and Texas Governor Republican Rick Perry texted Meadows on November 4th, the day after the election, and he outlined a way to deliver the election to Trump before voters, before votes were even being done counted. The text came from a number that CNN has confirmed belongs to Perry. And the text said, quote, here's an aggressive strategy. Why can't the states of Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and other Republican-controlled state houses declare this is BS, where conflicts in election not called that night, and just send their own electors to vote and have it go to SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States? Now, a spokesman for Rick Perry tells CNN that the former governor denies sending that text. When asked how, Perry explains the fact that the text came from Perry's phone number, well, the spokesman had no explanation. As CNN's Ryan Nobles reports, these revelations cap off a breakthrough week for the January 6th committee. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Roger Stone, one of the former President Donald Trump's most prominent and controversial supporters, met with the January 6th Select Committee today. I am uh, doing my civic duty and I am uh, responding as required by law to the subpoena. But he didn't say much. I did invoke my Fifth Amendment rights to every question, not because I have done anything wrong, but because I am fully aware 
of the House Democrats' long history uh, of fabricating perjury charges. Stone used the opportunity in his traditional showman style, presenting himself as a martyr for the MAGA cause with well-worn accusations and not much substance. This is witch hunt 3.0. Stone was among several high-profile right-wing personalities who stoked false election fraud claims and the fervor among Trump supporters. Help us pay for the staging, the transportation, and most importantly, the security of our peaceful protesters. He raised millions of dollars and was among the speakers at rallies in D.C. leading up to January 6th. And now they seek nothing less than the heist of the 2020 election, and we say, no way! While the interview with Stone was short and likely did not yield much information, the committee may have had more luck with Caroline Wren, another rally organizer who met with the committee for several hours today. Multiple sources interviewed by the committee previously told CNN investigators are interested in Wren's role as a fundraiser for various pro-Trump rallies, including the one on January 6th. The committee also wants to hear from Phil Waldron, the man behind a PowerPoint presentation filled with plans to overturn the election results that the committee said Mark Meadows was in receipt of. Committee members say they've issued him a subpoena because they want to know more about the document. Who did you talk to? When did you talk to them? Why? Where did you get this information from? The committee furiously wrapping up a hectic week of work ahead of the holidays. The House referred Meadows to the Department of Justice for potential criminal contempt charges. Investigators interviewed dozens of witnesses, including high-profile Trump allies Keith Kellogg, the then-National Security Advisor to the Vice President, and Ken Klukowski, a former DOJ official. And while most Republicans continue to cast doubt on the committee and its work, one very prominent Republican seems open to what they are discovering. Well, I'm like you. I read the reports every day, and it'll be interesting to see what, what they conclude. And while Roger Stone showed up for his deposition today but likely did not say very much, another right-wing conspiracy theorist seems to be taking a bit of a different tact. Alex Jones, who's scheduled to hold a deposition with the committee tomorrow, is no longer showing up. The committee saying that they are granting him a short postponement because, Jake, he is engaging with the committee's work. Jake. Hmm. All right, Ryan Nobles, thanks so much. Joining me live to discuss Democratic Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren of California. She's a member of the January 6th House Select Committee. Congresswoman, so we just reported uh, that the aggressive strategy text message calling for just the day after the election, uh, the White House or th- others to push three states, Pennsylvania, Georgia, North Carolina, to have their legislatures, which are Republican, just convene and, and send a different slate of electors uh, and thus kicking a constitutional crisis and sending this to the Supreme Court, that the author of that, members of your committee believe, uh, was former Governor Rick Perry, and that the text message came from a phone number that, that we have corroborated is Governor Rick Perry. So w- what's your response? Well, I'm not in a position to confirm uh, who was the author at this point. Ultimately, uh, the that information, all the information will be released by the committee. Uh, I want to commend you for being good reporters and tracking down leads. But the real um, you know, concern is this uh, text really proposes overturning uh, the Constitution. The votes hadn't even all been counted yet uh, when this text was sent, essentially saying ignore what the voters did Republicans send whoever you want as electors and rig the election. You know, I think President Trump 
former President Trump is known for projecting. Uh, he is saying, you know, it's stop the steal. Well, actually, it looks like he was being urged to steal the election. Yeah, and, um, and just to, just a note uh, of the three states uh, that Rick Perry was pushing in that text message attributed to Rick Perry's phone. One of them was North Carolina. The votes were still being counted, and ultimately Trump won that state. Correct. Um, you know, the the text says, you know, and other Republican states, and clearly it outlines um, a uh, a coup. The committee has now spoken with around 300 people, witnesses. You've reviewed troves of documents. How has your thinking evolved about the attack and the larger attempt to undermine democracy since you began investigating? Well, we've uncovered a lot of information. Obviously, there's more uh, to look at, more to learn. Uh, But we are seeing with the Mark Meadows information really um, some lines of communication between the plot and the riot and, uh, and the White House. We have more to ask Mr. Meadows about this, and we have other witnesses to talk to as well. Uh, but as uh, Senator uh, Mitch McConnell said, this is pretty interesting stuff, huh? It sure is. Um, the conspiracy to overthrow the results of the election now includes a, a former governor, uh, officials in the cabinet, uh, officials from the Pentagon, officials from the Justice Department, not to mention, of course, the Trump White House. I mean, we should just note this. This wasn't just a sweaty Rudy Giuliani holding deranged press conferences at, at Four Seasons Total Landscaping. This was a wide and deep and vast conspiracy. This is alarming and frightening. It is. And uh, we need to get the entire picture. And we also need to uh, see what steps we can take, not only to fully inform the American people, but to uh, change uh, processes so that uh, we're not vulnerable to this kind of plotting in the future. A lot of the conspiracy theorists and a lot of the plotters were pushing Vice President Mike Pence to do something that he didn't even have the constitutional power to do. As we know, the, the crowd was was chanting, hang Mike Pence, because they were so incensed uh, because of what President Trump and others had, had told them. Why hasn't Vice President Pence spoken with the committee yet? Well, I don't want to get into that, but we are certainly learning uh, more about uh, the vice president's actions and views. Uh, I will say this, that uh, the role of the vice president is and has always been really ceremonial. Um, and uh, there's really not a lot of ambiguity, but some ambiguity was attempted to be created about that. And in the end, uh, Vice President Pence understood that 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 was a role that he legally could play. And so uh, we're lucky for that. But I think, uh, you know, if we can tighten up um, so there's absolutely no way to ever suggest that that's, there's an ambiguity about that might be something we should look at doing. The New York Times published an op-ed piece this week called How to Tell When Your Country is Past the Point of Ro- No Return. Listen to this quote from Cornell professor Michael Macy, quote, If the water temperature increases only one degree per hour, it may take a while before you notice it is too hot. And by that time, it is too late. We might be better off if we faced an armed insurrection, which might be the exoshock needed to get the GOP establishment to wake up, unquote. I mean, where are we in terms of the threat to democracy? Should we as Americans start brushing up on how democracies end? I mean, it has happened. I mean, one look need 
Look no further than some countries in South America that had thriving democracies, and ultimately they don't anymore. Well, I believe that the vast majority of Americans uh, are in favor of our constitutional republic. Uh, we, uh, not everyone may understand the threats that have been posed and are, are being created even as we speak now. So I think those of us who are studying this uh, have an opportunity to make that information well known to the American public. And I think the vast number of Americans don't want to turn in our democracy for uh, a different form of government. So we have a lot of work to do, those of us who are working on this committee. And I, I would say uh, other uh, parts of our fabric of America, people like yourself and uh, the faith community and others uh, to say what the stakes are and how important uh, our democratic form of government is. I know that all of us in school, we pledge allegiance to the flag uh, in school. Well, it's The flag is a symbol, but really uh, what's important is yeah. our constitutional democratic form of government. Pledge allegiance to the flag and to the republic for which it stands. Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, thank you so much. Appreciate it. COVID spiking just before holiday gatherings. We're going to talk to an expert who says the U.S. is about to experience a, quote, viral blizzard. Plus, Tiger Woods returns the golf legend's first tournament since his devastating car crash. That's ahead. In our health lead, the holiday season is in full swing, but unfortunately... So is coronavirus. As weekly COVID cases continue to rise in the U.S., public health officials worry increased travel during the holidays and a new highly transmissible variant will only make things worse. CNN's Pete Montine joins us now live. And Pete, we're a week out from Christmas Eve. What do we know about how this current COVID-19 surge and the Omicron variant is impacting holiday travel, if at all. Well, we'll just have to see how this plays out, Jake. You know, United Airlines says we have already entered the busiest few days of the holiday travel season. In fact, it projects passenger loads 20% higher than what it saw during the Thanksgiving travel period, where we set pandemic-era air travel records. In fact, the TSA still projects 20 to 21 million people will pass through security at America's airports between December 23rd and January 3rd. You know, just yesterday, 2.06 million people passed through security at America's airports, the highest number we have seen since December 5th, a bit of an early kickoff to the holiday travel period here. You know, what's also so interesting is whether or not as these numbers go up, as the number of infections goes up, whether these projections will turn out just to be flat out false. You know, airlines say they have seen a bit of a wavering in ticket bookings as the Omicron variant started to make headlines. United Airlines CEO says cancellations have gone up a little bit, Jake. But what's also so interesting here is the CDC is giving out at-home coronavirus tests to international travelers as they arrive into the United States. Select airports only right now, maybe more soon. The bottom line here from the TSA, wear a mask. That's the federal guideline until March 18th, 2022. Bring a lot of patience and a lot of flexibility. If you haven't booked yet, may want to consider booking for Christmas Day itself when the numbers will be the smallest. Pete Montine, thanks so much. Also on our health lead, G7 health leaders are calling the Omicron variant, quote, the biggest current threat to global public health. And as CNN's Scott McLean reports, the UK just reported the highest number of daily cases since the pandemic began for the third consecutive day. With the Omicron variant surging across the UK, scientists at the University of Glasgow are racing to confirm in the lab what real-world data is already suggesting. Omicron is able to escape 
far better uh, immune-induced by vaccination than any other variant. It also appears to spread much more easily, but some indications are that it causes less severe symptoms. We will possibly have a million people a day who are being infected in the UK. And even if it's a tiny proportion of that large number, that will still result in quite a large number of hospitalization. Because the lab we're about to enter contains live samples of the Omicron variant, we have to be decked out head to toe in protective equipment and also sealed off with this respirator from any potential danger. When the virus sample first arrived here two weeks ago, it came in a very small vial. It's been left to grow and multiply in this incubator since then. Now they finally have enough to experiment with. They've already noticed Omicron does not multiply as quickly as Delta. Under the microscope, the dark spots are cells Delta infected in 24 hours. But even after 48 hours, the Omicron variant has not spread nearly as far, a potentially encouraging sign. It is slower in the lab, so uh, and it doesn't seem to be killing the cells as uh, the other variants. But this is all sort of in the lab, so the uh, question is now how does that translate into the actual patients? And sometimes things behave differently in a lab than they would in real life. Yes. In the real world, new infections of Omicron are doubling in as little as two days in some parts of the UK. There is a tidal wave of Omicron coming. The government thinks that every infected person infects three to five others. One not yet peer-reviewed model suggests that in the worst case scenario, more than half of the English population could be infected with the Omicron variant over the winter months. It's probably the most significant threat we've had since the start of the pandemic. In response, Prime Minister Boris Johnson is resorting to Plan B reviving the indoor mask mandate and introducing a COVID passport for nightclubs and large events. But a vote this week to confirm the measure provoked a mutiny from within Johnson's own Conservative Party, passing only thanks to votes from the opposition. So the eyes have it, the eyes have it. You are segregating society based on um, an unacceptable thing. We are not a papers-please society. But they are in mainland Europe. COVID passports are making life difficult for the unjabbed in places like Italy, France, Germany, and Austria. They're now required for everyday things like restaurants, public transit, going to work, or even leaving your house. Austria is making adult vaccinations mandatory. The new German chancellor is pushing for the same. But when Johnson suggested even a conversation about that in the future, it was publicly shot down by his own health secretary. Although we've seen plans for universal mandatory vaccination in some countries in Europe, I will never support them in this country. Instead, the government is resorting to a familiar approach, personal responsibility. I think people should prioritize what really matters to them and then cut down on the things that don't. But with another record high of new infections Friday and the threat of rising hospitalizations, Johnson may soon need to convince a weary public to go along with even more restrictions, unless some good news is discovered inside labs like this one.
And because of the surging Omicron variant, in about 40 minutes from now, France is officially closing its border to British tourists and business travelers, even if they're vaccinated. Not that they would have that much fun there anyways, Jake. The French are also banning public drinking and large parties on New Year's Eve to try to keep Omicron under control. Scott McLean, thanks so much. Appreciate that report. Let's discuss all of this with Michael Osterholm. He's the director for the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Uh, Good to see you again, Mr. Osterholm. So last night you said the U.S. is about to experience a, quote, viral blizzard in the next three to eight weeks. Millions of Americans are going to get infected. You say, when you look at what's happening in the U.K., which is usually ahead of us by a few weeks uh, when it comes to this pandemic, what lessons can the U.S. learn? One is that we still have to deal with the Delta uh, epidemic we see or pandemic as worldwide issues. And that isn't done yet. That's what is really stressed in our hospitals yet. The question is going to be is how will Omicron replace that or will it? And so that will then add an additional burden onto it. And so we still have a real question yet about that. The second thing, of course, is the seriousness of the illness. We're all reporting about how much more infectious it is, which indeed Omicron is. But the challenge will be, is it going to increase the number of hospitalizations, serious illnesses and deaths? And that's what we don't really understand yet. We're seeing testing lines reminiscent to last year when the number of Americans vaccinated were were minuscule. How much of the surge we're seeing right now is about the Omicron variant, or is it more that not enough people have gotten vaccinated, not enough people have gotten the booster? Well, not enough people have gotten vaccinated for sure. And in this country, only a third of individuals who should have that third dose, uh, a dose I don't like to call a booster. I think it's part of a three prime series, something we should have been promoting for months that we needed three doses. So, in fact, that's there. The question right now is, as you're asking about what is Omicron doing, that's what's coming down the pike. The cases are getting sick now. But as we've seen in South Africa, it'll take several weeks before they turn into severe illnesses, result potentially in hospitalization and deaths. Right now, if we didn't have another Delta virus transmission in the country, the next three weeks are already in the books, meaning that the people who have gotten infected will go on and develop symptoms, then with time become more seriously ill, be hospitalized, and then some of those will die. That's a, a fact for right now. So what we're really looking for is what will happen in three to five weeks from now. And I think that's why when I talked about the viral blizzard, I think we're going to see lots of transmission of the virus uh, well into the middle of January. And that's when we're going to know really the impact of Omicron. Uh, there's this new uh, op-ed from former uh, FDA officials in The Washington Post. And, and they say the Biden administration has been making important vaccine decisions without consulting independent panels of experts. Uh, They cite three decisions in particular, the FDA authorizing boosters for all adults, the CDC announcing everyone 18 and older should get the booster, and the FDA authorizing booster shots for 16 and 17-year-olds. What do you make of their charges? Do you agree that the Biden administration is not listening to the scientists enough? Well, you know, there is a division right now. We just have to acknowledge that some people don't think that the boosters are that important. I, for one, do believe that. I actually wrote an op-ed piece in The Washington Post several weeks ago urging that we no longer think of boosters as that. But really, to be fully vaccinated, you need all three doses. I think the data are clear and compelling, and uh, we don't have time to wait. This is like a Jon Snow moment. Jon Snow is the famous Englishman who pulled the pump handle off of a contaminated well in England back in the 1860s to stop a cholera outbreak long before the bacteria was even discovered. We need to pull pump handles right now. We need to do things where we have enough data to support 
that in fact something may work and then we need to do it because what we're facing otherwise is in fact this viral blizzard and the impact that it will have on us. I'm glad you explained who Jon Snow was because I thought you were making a reference to Game of Thrones. Dr. Michael Osterholm, <laughs> thank you so much. Really appreciate thank it. I hope you have a good weekend. Next, I'm going to talk you to too. the head of the Anti-Defamation League who says former President Donald Trump just used classic anti-Semitic stereotypes. Stay with us. In our politics lead, former President Trump using, according to the Anti-Defamation League, quote, classic anti-Semitic stereotypes about Israeli and Jewish control of Congress and the press, unquote. In an interview with Israeli journalist Barak Ravid, Trump claimed, falsely, that Jewish Americans do not like or care about Israel, and he spouted off a number of other rather ignorant remarks about Jews. Let's get right to what the former president said with Jonathan Greenblatt of the Anti-Defamation League. Jonathan, before we discuss Trump's comments, trigger alert for people who don't like anti-Semitism. Let's play them. People in this country that are Jewish no longer love Israel. I'll tell you, the evangelical Christians love Israel more than the Jews in this country. It used to be that Israel had absolute power over Congress, and today I think it's the exact opposite. You look at the New York Times, The New York Times hates Israel, hates them, and they're Jewish people that run the New York Times. So a lot to dive into there. I mean, that's like four or five anti-Semitic tropes in 40 seconds, a new record, perhaps. Let's look at um, Trump's first claim, John. A Pew survey earlier this year found that 58 percent of Jews in America are very or somewhat emotionally attached to Israel. Sixty percent say that they have a lot or something in common with Israeli Jews. So to say that American Jews don't like or love Israel, that's inaccurate just as a factual matter. Yeah, look, I mean, Jake, these comments, unfortunately, are not very surprising from former President Trump, but they fall somewhere between stunning and stupid. Now, I expect this from people on the extreme right or the far left, but you would think a former president of the United States with with Jewish grandchildren would get stuff like this right. And what are we talking about? Look, the bottom line is Jews, he is not the one to tell Jewish people about their feelings for Israel, but there is widespread, overwhelming positive feelings among the Jewish community for the Jewish state. And that's just the start, as you pointed out, of what he said, tropes about greed, power, loyalty, clannishness, like literally you wonder how low he's going to go. Yeah. And then he said, Israel, I'm just going to quote this, Israel had absolute power over Congress. And today I think it's the exact opposite. I mean, the idea that Israel had absolute control over Congress or absolute power over Congress, that's the kind of anti-Semitism you hear from like members of the Klan. That's right. I mean, this sounds like Richard Spencer, or this sounds like some of the most radical people on the left, or Lyndon LaRouche, for goodness sakes. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. Israel doesn't have absolute power over anything, even its own electorate, for goodness sakes. But this plays into these longstanding tropes, Jake, that have led to Jewish people being harassed, suffering from violence, and literally being killed. So it's not something we can take lightly, especially when it's coming from a former commander-in-chief. It's really quite disturbing. Trump claimed um, that evangelical Christians love Israel more than Jewish Americans. This is, this is a complicated issue. Obviously, a lot of evangelical Christians are supportive of Israel. There's a theological reason uh, uh, behind a lot of that. What's he talking about here? Well, look, it's certainly true that there are many people of the Christian faith, evangelicals, 
Catholics, other other denominations within Protestantism, the, of the you know the Church of Latter Day Saints that feel very strongly about the Jewish state of Israel. That could be for biblical reasons, or political reasons, or personal reasons. But to say that this group loves Israel more than that group, like that's the kind of analysis we don't really need because at the bottom line, Jake, it's anti-Semitism to play into these tropes and these myths about who feels more strongly about the Jewish state helps no one, particularly the Jewish people. Yeah, I mean, also you don't have, it's not a contest, right? I mean, he seems to be judging, the way he seems to look at this is like support for Israel is measured by how much people voted for, for me, for Donald Trump. Evangelical Christians yeah, well, overwhelmingly voted for me. Therefore, they love Israel more than Jewish Americans who disproportionately did not vote for me. Yeah, look, the bottom line is President Trump's yardstick, as always, is his ego. Because that's what seems to be the measure that he uses to determine someone's value, someone's patriotism, or in this case, someone's Zionism. But none of it works. And again, we have seen time and again, whether it's you know, people who belong to different organizations or extremist movements employ the same kind of myths, Jake, and use it to justify the marginalization and the persecution of Jewish people. Yeah. And it's flat out wrong. And then, of course, he went after The New York Times, claiming, claiming the newspaper hates Israel and it's run by Jews. Obviously, uh, he, he goes on to say he's talking about the Salzburg, Salzburger families who, who have run the paper uh, for, for decades. Um, but still, to say the, the New York Times is... is uh, is run, they, he goes, Jewish people run the New York Times. I mean, again, like this plays into this trope about Jews controlling the media. And we also know the myths of Jews controlling Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, you name it. Anti-Semitism is a conspiracy theory and it adapts and it morphs and it shapes to the times and to the particular, you know, uh, pathologies of the person pushing out the prejudice. That's what we have here. The bottom line is all of these myths, again, have been used to justify violence against the Jewish people. And the people who push out such myths, Jake, they aren't our friends, right? They, they don't align with our values. When I say our friends, I mean, they don't align with the American values of decency and humanism and tolerance. And that's why they're so problematic. Yeah. Jonathan Greenblatt, thank you so much. Good to see you again. Vladimir Putin ignores President Biden's warning as Russia continues to build up its troops near Ukraine. That's next. In our world lead, Russian President Vladimir Putin trying his best to squash NATO's sphere of influence as Putin continues to toy with Ukraine, demanding security guarantees in a proposal published today that include NATO pledging to not expand east, NATO not allowing Ukraine to join, and pushing the U.S. to cease any military cooperation with Ukraine. Those tall and rather unlikely demands, while CNN is learning about further buildup of Russian troops on the Ukraine-Russia border, a direct rebuke to President Biden's plea to de-escalate tension. CNN's Natasha Bertrand broke the story. She joins us live. Natasha, how big is Russia's presence on the Ukrainian border right now? Well, Jake, it's well over 100,000 troops. And the latest U.S. intelligence assessments put the number of battalion tactical groups, which are units comprised of about 900 personnel each, typically, at about 50. Um, so there's upwards of 50 of those massive groups kind of stationed at the border with six more on the way. That's according to U.S. officials who spoke to us. And there's a lot of concern here, obviously, over what Russia's plans actually are, which the U.S. is still trying to determine. They do not know whether or not Russian President Vladimir 
Putin has actually made the decision to invade, but they warn that he could do so at a moment's notice, essentially, if he decided to because of all this equipment and because of all these troops that are currently stationed at the border, some as close as about 30 miles away from Ukraine. So the Ukrainians obviously getting a bit nervous about this. They are asking the U.S. for more weapons. They are asking for more support. The U.S. says, look, we provided over $400 million in security assistance already. Um, We are trying to de-escalate the situation, not escalate it further by uh, putting more weapons into the conflict. Um, So obviously all sides are very tense right now. The Russians are not backing down. In fact, they are demanding more security guarantees that the United States is saying are pretty much non-starters. And how is the Biden administration responding? Well, they put out a draft proposal today of of what they're kind of demanding from the U.S. and the West, um, kind of putting that out in public. And the administration has told reporters today that Moscow knows that a lot of those bullet points on their list, a lot of those demands are simply not going to happen. So things, for example, like a guarantee that Ukraine will not be allowed to join NATO, that the U.S. will not uh, be conducting any kind of military cooperation with Ukraine. These are things that the administration knows or it feels that Moscow knows, but is putting out there because it wants a pretext for a conflict, right? A lot of analysts, a lot of U.S. officials saying that Moscow is deliberately provoking here because they know they are not going to get what they want. And when they don't, they can then say, well, we tried, now we're going to launch this attack. So the administration is, you know, has a very delicate dance going on here with the Russians. They still believe there's a window here for diplomacy, but they are willing to, you know, take much further action than they did in 2014, for example, if Russia does actually move to invade. All right, Natasha Bertrand, thank you so much for that reporting. Coming up, it was a $4 billion settlement that gave the powerful Sackler family broad protection from opioid lawsuits, but now that settlement has just been overturned. What does that all mean? That's next. Star internationally, the judge is rejecting a settlement involving the opioid crisis and the Sackler family. It's their company, Purdue Pharma, behind OxyContin, the powerful, highly addictive painkiller. A bankruptcy deal agreed to by some state's attorneys general and the Sackler family back in September shielded Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers against any future lawsuits. In exchange, in part, the Sacklers had to pay more than $4 billion to opioid victims and charities. But a federal judge is now overturning that deal. And as CNN's Tom Foreman reports, one attorney general who pushed for this reversal, is calling the decision a seismic victory for justice. The federal court ruling upends a sweeping settlement of the bankruptcy of Purdue Pharma, a deal that would have cost the owners of Purdue, the Sackler family, billions of dollars while shielding them from future civil lawsuits that could have cost even more. The judge said the bankruptcy court that approved that arrangement did not have the authority. A judge overseeing that has looked at it and said, no, no, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, They didn't declare bankruptcy themselves, so they shouldn't be released from any future liability by this bankruptcy judge. Many states had accepted the bankruptcy deal. Others are cheering its repudiation. This is a seismic victory for justice and accountability that will reopen the deeply flawed Purdue bankruptcy and force the Sackler family to confront the pain and devastation they have caused. Purdue Pharma says it will appeal. 
arguing the bankruptcy deal would have sent four and a half billion of the family's dollars to help build addiction and treatment programs. And the new ruling could delay and perhaps end the ability of creditors, communities, and individuals to receive billions in value to abate the opioid crisis. The CDC says that crisis has killed nearly 590,000 Americans since 1999, several in Joan Peterson's family. It's almost like this monster that sits on top of the rooftop waiting to just pluck away people. To be sure, other companies have also been involved in the epidemic, but Purdue pled guilty to federal criminal charges in 2020 over the way it marketed and sold OxyContin, agreeing to pay over $8 billion. Still, Sackler family members have never admitted wrongdoing and have said from the earliest days doctors were thrilled. They were extremely enthusiastic about the effectiveness and the safety and the reception their patients had, response they had to the product. It distresses me greatly and angers me greatly that the medication that was developed to help people and relieve severe pain has become associated with so much human suffering. CNN reached out to the Sacklers for any further comment. We've heard nothing yet. In the wake of this new ruling, some states say they will continue pursuing cases against the Sacklers, and the New York Attorney General specifically says we will get justice for the American people. Jake? Tom Farman, thanks so much. Coming up next, Tiger Woods makes his return. The sports star tees off in a tournament for the first time since that horrific car crash. Stay with us. In our sports lead, the comeback king back again. Tiger Woods picking up his clubs for the first time in a competition since that horrific car crash almost a year ago. And after months of what must have been brutal rehab, the man with 82 PGA Tour wins in the bag will Tee off tomorrow in a father-son tournament with his 12-year-old, Charlie, after finishing a promising practice round today. Joining us now, CNN sports analyst Christine Brennan. Christine Tiger's relationship with his dad was so fundamental to his game. How important is this for Tiger to come back and share this comeback moment with his son? It's the perfect spot for him to do this, Jake. It's one of those tournaments they call a hit and giggle. It's, it doesn't count in the standings. It's not a real tournament. Uh, it is a family members. There's actually one a woman's professional player playing with her dad. And it's otherwise basically fathers and sons. And it's perfect. Uh, young Charlie, 12 years old, is the spinning image of his dad, a mini me. It's just fun to watch that and to see that. Tiger is so proud of his son. And for Tiger just to get out there and hit shots and be able to, as he said, feel the sun and step on the grass, uh, it's been not even 10 months since that horrific accident that you alluded to. It's stunning. His, his right leg was shattered. And uh, and he's back. He's almost 46 years old. Um, and now he did use a cart a little bit, which is a very big deal because walking is an essential part of a PGA Tour player's life. So to use a cart, of course, signifies that he, of course, at this point could not walk a golf course. But this is just a start. And when and if he comes back, I think he will mark time from this moment, this weekend. Yeah. I mean, as you note, it's only been 10 months. I mean, rehab, you know, requires pacing yourself. So uh, golf superstar Justin Thomas uh, said this about Tiger's and Charlie's chances. Take a listen. In terms of the competing, I think his, his expectations are very low, but at the same time, uh, he is who he is for a reason, so I'm sure he'll be pissed off if he doesn't play well. How big a deal is it for Tiger to be around all these familiar faces, even if the father-son duo doesn't come in first place? 
Jake, it's huge. I've covered Tiger for 25 years. He's the most competitive person I've ever met and ever dealt with. And, um, and this is why he's so great. All this talent and then all this ability to practice. He puts it together. Uh, he's the hardest worker and he just obviously the greatest golfer ever. Jack Nicklaus, Tiger Woods, whatever. It's, uh, it's right up there. Um, and so, yeah, he wants to play well. There's real pride there for Tiger Woods. And even though he was in a hospital bed a few months ago and he couldn't uh, get out of the bed or walk from, for several months, uh, you know, now he's on a golf course again. So that Tiger kind of just clicks in. And no surprise at all that he'd like to play well, that his, his uh, fellow players and, and uh, peers think he wants to play well and expect him to do okay. And I guess today during the Pro-Am, he had some really good shots. Uh, and so, yep, Tiger is, uh, is going to work his way back and be as competitive as ever, understanding that 46-year-old Tiger Woods is very different and his leg, of course, will certainly hamper him. Uh, he will never be the same again. Uh, let's uh, take a, a quick pivot to the broader subject of COVID cases grounding sports teams. Just today, two more NHL teams had to shut down. Three NFL games were postponed. A Johns Hopkins senior scholar said to the Washington Post, quote, there is no COVID zero. There's never going to be a time when the NBA or NFL has zero cases or any organization has zero cases, unquote. Are, are professional teams grasping that reality? Slowly but surely. There was a, a, a moment today, Jake, when I reminded me of March 11, 2020. That was, of course, the evening where the NBA announced it was suspending operations. Tom Hanks, Rita Wilson had tested positive. And the sports world really uh, led the way in showing us how serious COVID was back in March of 2020. It's a very different situation now. Of course, we have vaccines. Uh, of course, we know so much more. But sports, again, three NFL games, 100 players uh, in the NFL that are, are in the protocol. Of course, the NBA, NHL, college basketball. You know, you almost feel like, here we go again. Um, I hope that's not the case. It will be different. But I do think these leagues are grasping now the reality that COVID is here. The, de the Delta and Omicron are with us. And it's not going to be business as usual as much as they hoped it would be. Christine Brennan, thanks so much. Appreciate it. And our tech lead, hackers could be delaying the all-important last paycheck before Christmas for many American workers. Ultimate Kronos Group, one of the country's largest human resources company says that they have been hit with a crippling ransomware attack, and that is impacting payroll systems for dozens of major companies and government organizations that employ tens of thousands of workers. Affected employers are scrambling to pay workers in other ways, such as shifting to paper checks to make sure people are still paid during this time when it's needed most. The company says it could be weeks before they are able to restore normal operations. Be sure to tune into State of the Union on Sunday. Our guests include Dr. Anthony Fauci, Senator Bernie Sanders, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, and Democratic Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. That's at 9 and noon Eastern, only on CNN. You can follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and the TikTok. Our coverage continues right next door with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in a place I like to call the Situation Room. See you Sunday morning. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. 
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.